We look this morning at the third letter of the acrostic tulip, I, Irresistible Grace. Um, We've been reminded weekly that all of mankind is born spiritually bound to their sinful nature, which is dead in transgressions and sins. And therefore, by nature, all mankind are children of wrath. And as such, all persons are totally depraved, completely unable to come to God as they please, where in their natural state, they not only refuse to accept the things of God, they cannot accept or even understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So man is a fallen sinner, has no way of knowing the truth of God since all of God's truth uh, must be evaluated spiritually. That's why he must be born again. He must be born from above. All the faculties of man are corrupted by sin, subject to his nature, which are spiritually dead. And even Arminians, it's funny, Arminians agree that the heart, mind, and affections have indeed been corrupted by sin, yet in the same breath, they also say that man's will has not been affected. Somehow, the will has been left free, not realizing that the mind, the heart, and the affections are what make up the will. Now, Scripture provides us with a universal indictment in Romans chapter 3, Uh, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And also, in Romans 9, we have a divine decree that says, God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we ask the question, you know, why some and not others? Why are some shown mercy and others not shown mercy? Well, it's certainly not because I decided to subject my will, which is subject to my nature, which is dead, just to submit it freely to God anytime I choose. Uh, But it's because of the divine, sovereign, unconditional election of God who chose some before the foundation of the earth elected on the basis of God's good pleasure, purpose, and will, not on the basis of what God foresees man doing in the future, where he looks down the chasm of time and then chooses man based on whether or not he chooses God. To foresee or to foreknow means to forelove, not to foresee. To foreknow. Ephesians 1.5 tells us that He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Unconditionally elected and appointed to eternal life. Appointed means ordained to eternal life. We read in in the book of Acts chapter 13 that the Gentiles heard the truth of the gospel coming to them and they rejoiced and the scripture says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were ordained out of that group to eternal life, believed. 
Now, the Bible also teaches that unconditional election in of itself does not save anyone. This is a, a little review uh, to, to work into irresistible grace. Um, God's elected, however, are accepted on the basis of an atonement. On the basis of an atonement. An atonement that was not universal in potential, depending upon man's effort, but instead is limited to God's elect. Making the, the atonement of Christ definite, purposeful, and actual. We looked at the high priestly prayer of Jesus last week. John 17, where Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those you, Father, have given to me from out of the world. And in the Old Testament, the high priest would go in and pray on behalf of God's covenant people, and then he would make atonement for God's people, the people he just prayed for. He didn't pray for the covenant people and then go make atonement for the Canaanites and the Perizzites and so on. When Jesus made atonement, he made atonement for his sheep, those given to him by the Father, providing an actual definite redemption, an actual reconciliation, and actual propitiation, actually definitely satisfying the wrath of God. So if the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, John 10, then he gives all the sheep eternal life, does he not? So logically then, the work of the atonement must be applied without fail to all for whom Christ died. He didn't die for the world without exception. If he had died for the world without exception, then there are those who are in hell right now also paying for their sin. So it's double punishment of the son and of the sinner. So Jesus died for his sheep without distinction from throughout the world. All for whom atonement was made were chosen unconditionally before the foundation of the earth, both, both of which are divine actions of God, redemptive history, that assure the experience of salvation to particular sinners. So the atonement and unconditional election are acts of rede in redemptive history that secured the experience of those chosen before the foundation of the earth. But nevertheless, there is something that is done to the sinner that activates the experience of belief in time and space or we might say, in a moment in time, for which we've all experienced, if you're a believer here. And that, my friends, is another work of God that resurrects the sinner from his or her totally depraved condition, calling them out of their entombed, spiritually dead nature. Salvation is indeed the work of God. So again, no one seeks God, Romans 3. No one understands God, 1 Corinthians 2. No one can obey God, Romans 8. No one can come to Jesus unless they're drawn by the Father, John 6. And no one can come to Jesus unless it's granted to, God, to him by the Father, John 6, 65. Now, that radical 
inability extends to every single person without exception. How then does anyone at all respond positively to the gospel of God? If all are dead, how is it that some hear and come forth repenting, believing, and trusting in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and others hear the same message and never believe, reject it? And the answer is in the fourth point of the doctrines of grace, the fourth petal of the tulip under the letter I is irresistible grace, which counters the fourth heretical point of Arminianism, which they refer to as obstructible grace, which teaches that although men are dead, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, God has given an equal amount of grace to all sinners to equip them to choose either for or against God. That's what Arminianism teaches. So, beloved, it's that kind of thinking, that kind of erroneous thinking that produces very misleading very terribly mistaken gospel tracts. We've all seen gospel tracts, right? Some are very well done. The majority, not so much so. One comes in the form of a blank check. You've seen these perhaps. In the place of the date, it says, anytime, place." That blank check can be drawn upon the account of the infinite riches of the Lord Jesus Christ urging you all along the way to accept Jesus as your Savior as he waits to save you, as he just waits to forgive you of all your sins and to bestow upon you joy and peace and eternal life. So please accept him. He's waiting for you. So when you're ready, when you're ready, in the place of pay to the order of, fill in the blank with your name. Right? That's one tract. Another tract, since this is voting, did you vote this week? Or you will vote. I vote uh, through the mail. So you have this ballot. And this tract comes in the form of a voting ballot, preparing you to do some voting. Two simple boxes to choose from. One says yes, one says no. On this ballot, two other persons have already voted. Okay? God, he's voted for your salvation. Naturally, then, Satan is what? Voted against it. And it's up to you to cast now the deciding vote. So you're, in, you're urged now to vote for Jesus and be saved. You've seen those? Well, they're out there. <laughs> okay? Which conveys that the sinner, yes, although he's fallen and, and come short of the glory of God, isn't really in that bad a shape. After all, he can do something to initiate salvation by tacking Jesus onto his life or her life. While God just sits in heaven fawning over sinners, as he fawns over them, though, he's confined and he cannot violate their free will. That's what's taught. His hands are tied. He's unable to barge in on your free will. 
unable to barge in on your free will life and decisions. So he sits on the throne, cheering for you, wringing his hands, just hoping, just waiting and wondering, what will these sinners do? If that were the case, friends, we would have to conclude that God lives a very, very disappointing life. Right? Because so many want nothing to do with the gospel. So many want nothing to do with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing our Bibles as we do, such a theology as those tracts express is contrary to scripture. God waits on nobody. Now, if that were the case, then his grace would be obstructible. It would be resistible. And yet again, it would provide man another kind of meritorious achievement in his salvation. But the mandate given to us by Jesus in the Great Commission, in keeping to and in, in corresponding with his universal authority, the scripture says in Matthew 28, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. Amen? And naturally, that which precedes disciple-making is gospel proclamation. And proclaiming the gospel is not an invitation. It is a command. It's God's demand for sinners to repent and what? And believe. But we will see without the intrusion of God the Holy Spirit, no man can repent and believe to turn from sin, and to come to Christ, who is the sole solitary means of salvation. Now, that call to preach the gospel is what's referred to as the general call. The general call of the gospel. Gospel proclamation. God's command that sinners repent and believe. And attached to that proclamation in Scripture is a promise. Those who truly repent and believe shall be saved. They have eternal life. And let me ask a question. What person in their right mind wouldn't want this? To hear this truth, what person in their right mind would not immediately repent of their sin and rebellion, embrace, embrace Jesus Christ upon the first hearing of the gospel? Why is it that so many hear this news and refuse it? And why are there some that hear it and respond to it. There are those who hear the, the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ and others who hear the same message, reject him until the day they die and want nothing to do with him. Jesus said in John 3, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In Ephesians 4, speaking to Christians, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So how then do we account for the divergent responses? Are they determined by one's intelligence? No. One's moral uprightness? No. One's religious inclinations? No. One's spiritual intuitiveness? No, absolutely not. None of the above. 
It's solely determined by the grace of God and his irresistible call. We might call it the effectual call, the efficacious call. Amen? Now, most modern evangelicals believe that faith comes before regeneration. And that's why you get uh, a modern evangelicalism that's riddled with Arminianism and has been held uh, with a stranglehold ever since the days of Charles Finney, who invented what we know as the altar what? Call. And it results in this. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, repeat this prayer. Now, with your eyes closed, raise your hand. If you said that prayer, I see that hand. I see that hand. Okay, I see that hand. Now, you have to put feet to your faith. And now, walk down to the altar and be what? Born again. And be born again. So, you know, if you believe that salvation is an act of man, then you'll have no, you know, no reason not to use, you know, psychological ploys and such. Or entertainment. Or certain stimulus. Or even Bozo the Clown. To get people to walk down an aisle. Now, does God save people that way? Sure, he has. He will work in spite of us. But what that does oftentimes is builds within the visible church many people within the visible church who are unregenerate. Does faith precede regeneration or does regeneration precede faith as we read our Bible? Amen. Regeneration precedes faith. If men and women are truly spiritually dead, totally depraved, they're bound in their trespasses and sins, unable to seek God, unable to understand or obey God, then the eye of irresistible grace is not merely passive as an option, but is absolutely essential if anyone at all is ever going to be saved. This must Happen. This is not a passive grace. This is what's known as the aggressive grace of God. And if you're saved here this morning, you are forever grateful for the aggressive grace of God. Because the aggressive grace of God is what actually births belief and faith into existence. Irresistible grace, again, is also referred to the, as the efficacious call or the effective call. Now, part of the problem with Christians' messed up soteriology today, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation, thinking that faith precedes regeneration and so on, is a failure to distinguish between the external call of the gospel and the internal call of God the Holy Spirit. For anyone saved here today, and I trust we all are, you have experienced both the external and internal call of God. 
See, what Arminians say is that God calls all men externally, and then when some repent and believe God, he then gives them new life. The Bible teaches the reverse. It's true that the general call of the gospel goes out to all men. All men. But it's not true that God gives them new life based on what they do with it. Instead, while God calls all men externally to repent and believe, he only calls his own sheep internally to believe. So this then is a performative grace that produces the faith that God demands in the gospel call. What God demands for his sheep, what he commands for his sheep, he provides for them internally. And for this reason, irresistible grace is referred to as that call which is effective, effectual. So to understand something of this, we'll look at very familiar territory. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Which reads, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, which means to forelove, not foresee. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brethren, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified so those predestined are called in other words this is a call for God's elect it literally reads God works for the good of those who love him to those who are the called ones the called ones now that is not a broad sweeping gospel call that is not the general call of the gospel to repent and believe such as the lord's words in matthew 22 many are called but few are what chosen that's the general call this call is not general this is not the outward proclamation call that's being referred to here this is something that that comes only to those predestined which results in their justification That's why it's efficacious, effectual. Now, called is part of a group of words that come out of the root kaleo. You've heard that word, kaleo. It means to summon or to call into one's presence. In Matthew 2, when Herod was all rattled about the the, uh, Gentile uh, wise men and so on coming from the east, um, He summoned the Magi into his presence. And they came. We as believers, the Lord Jesus Christ Church, are referred to as the called, the church, the the ecclesia. So that's not from kaleo, but from eklakeo. Ek is the preposition for called out of, which intensifies the verb to summon making it a stronger, more intense kind of summoning or an intense summons. 
So Christ's church then becomes the noun form of that verb, making her the called out ones. That's what we are. We're the called out ones. You've been called out from the world. So the true church is the assembly of those summoned by God to God. He's summoned you and called you to himself as a people saved by God from God. That's what salvation is. What do you save from? I should say who? God. God's wrath. So we're saved by God from God, saved by his grace from his wrath. Called out ones. The church. Look at Romans 1. Paul's introduction to the church in Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, on the Damascus road, he was en route to arrest Christians, throw them in prison, persecute Christians. Was he at all seeking God? No. Was God seeking him? Did God call him? Was that called general or efficacious? Obstructible or irresistible? Irresistible. Called. Verse 6. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus. You're called because you belong to Jesus. And because you belong to Jesus, he called you in. By calling you out of the world. Verse 7, you are the called ones of Jesus Christ, holy ones called out by God. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, set apart in Christ, called to be saints together. And this calling, notice verse 2, not only justifies you, but it sanctifies you. Is the world justified? Is everyone who hears the external call justified or sanctified? No. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are what? Called, whether you're Jew or Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. For what purpose? Why did he do this? For his own good pleasure, which is to shame the wise. Anyone have a problem with that? This is a call based on the fact that God has chosen and brings them that he calls into fellowship with Jesus Christ. The effectual call who become part of the ecclesia, the church. He, who builds his church? Christ builds his church. And not even death can stand in the way. That's why we need to be born again, resurrected from spiritual death. Ephesians 4, verse 1. 
I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, this is also Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Sovereign Lord who calls some out and to himself. Again, this is the efficacious, determinative, operative, saving call of God to his elect. Why preach the gospel? Because we don't know who they are, right? I don't know who God's elect are. But they're only going to come to saving faith by way of the general call in those he's deemed to save in a moment of time will make that call, which is general, efficacious. So you might be sitting here, well, I resisted the call long, many times. Not the irresistible call you didn't. That's a straw man, by the way, that Arminians build up just to knock him down with a machete. And that's one of the, uh, that's what you do in debate when you know you don't have an argument. You build a straw man so you can beat him down in front of everybody. Right? Romans eight twenty eight says, Notice, all things work together for good to those who have been what? Called by God. Clearly, that has to do with the internal call of the Spirit. Because if, if it's only externally called, okay, then those who reject the gospel go to hell. All things are not working for their good. Right? Also consider verse 30. It says that those who were called by God are justified and glorified. If this referred to the external call only, then everyone would be justified and everyone would be glorified. Is that the case? No. This is the internal call. In Acts 16, Lydia, who was by the river with some of her women folk, heard the gospel. Why did she believe? The scripture says God opened her heart God opens the heart to believe you can't work up a faith in Christ in your fallen sinful dead condition the Lord opened her heart he opened the tomb of her heart and she was religious so the doctrine of the internal call cannot be avoided if we take the Bible seriously it leaves no room for man to play a part in his own salvation. Or you can what? Boast. Can anyone boast? No. So every aspect of salvation, the ordo salutis, every aspect of salvation is from God. It's by God. It is for the glory of God. And we benefit. You see, you are a means to his end. Your salvation is a means to his end. What's the end? The glory of God. The glory of God. 
So why do some people respond to the gospel? Quite simply because God has called them, having chosen them. Why, ha- why do others not? God did not call them. Why? He did not choose them. Is that hard to understand? No. Difficult to accept? Go ahead. Perhaps. <laughs> this call produces new life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, says that we were dead before God called us, and he quickened us. Because a dead man can do absolutely nothing. And I'm going to get to Lazarus, whoever said that. He cannot cooperate with God whatsoever if he's dead. That's like Lazarus in the grave. He cannot come back to life unless Jesus raises him and commands him to come forth. That's what he did. So this difference between the external calling and and the internal call, uh, this fellow named Grover Gunn provides a nice illustration for us when he says this, quote, The external call, like sheet lightning, you know, sheet lightning, cloud-to-cloud lightning, is grand and beautiful and never strikes anything. The internal call is like the forked flash from heaven. It strikes somewhere and does an effectual work. Who can resist it? End quote. No one. So when the gospel goes out in word only, this has nothing to do with, with the preacher. You know, Spurgeon was born again by a very a guy who was actually sitting in for the preacher. There was nothing dynamic about the man. He simply read from the text that day, and Spurgeon was born again. But when the word goes out in word only, dead men don't have a chance. But when the gospel goes forth in spirit and power according to God's salvific plan, it carries with it the life-giving power of Christ. It's, you can't obstruct that. So at that point in time, according to God's sovereign will and purpose, at that moment, the sinner can do no more to stay in the grave of his spiritual deadness and refuse to come to Christ than Lazarus could have remained in the grave and not come out to Christ. He must come. See, Christians, who has a problem with God's sovereignty and salvation? Unbelievers? No, what do they care? It's always Christians. And if they're saved, they should be rejoicing that it was irresistible, that it was efficacious, non-obstructable. Or you'd still be on the broad road leading to hell, and you would make it there. So irresistible grace, the effectual call, not only contains the command 
to repent and believe, but actually brings to life the very repentance and faith that God demands in the gospel call. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, I hope it's beautiful to everybody. So it's a call that affects what it demands. It conquers resistance of a sinful person who hates God, liberating that person, liberating them in their human will that's bound to sin and death, where Jesus now becomes the welcomed object of their worship. He made you alive. You didn't make yourself alive. He called you out of death. Psalm 110.3, very interesting verse. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your what? Your power, God. 2 Timothy 1.9. God who saved us. Notice this. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. Not called and then saved since we responded. No. Saved us and called us to a holy calling. So the inner call of the gospel occurs when the Holy Spirit accompanies the preaching of the gospel with life-giving power. As they say in the South, power. All those and only those who receive this inner call from God respond to the gospel with true saving faith transforming the sinner, justifying the sinner, sanctifying the sinner, glorifying the sinner. Listen to this. John 5. He's talking about the final resurrection. Jesus is. Where we're talking about the physical resurrection. Okay, when you die, if you die, if I die today, I'm going to heaven. My body will be in the grave. It'll be buried in the plot that we have over there. Where is it? Miramar or something? My body will be there. I will be with the Lord. When Jesus Christ returns in glory, my body will be raised, brought back with my spirit, and glorified. Amen? Amen? That's the resurrection. Those who die today who are not believers go to hell. Their body goes into the grave. When Christ comes back, their body will be joined with their spirit, fit for eternal punishment. Jesus talks about that day in John 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That is not salvation based on works. The good work is in Christ alone. Everything else is bad. Question, will any of those physically dead people be able to resist the voice of Christ on that day? Anybody? As hard as they try? No, they will not. Therefore, neither can the spiritually dead 
resist the voice of Christ when he calls them to spiritual life through the gospel. Amen? Truly, truly, I say to you, said Jesus, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You get this? Now, that straw man argument that Arminians have, they will argue against irresistible grace by creating this straw man to knock it down and claim victory. And they say this, Calvinists believe that God's grace can't be resisted. So in a debate, they'll say, I have a question for all of you here today. I know that I resisted the grace of God for years. By a show of hands... How many of you have resisted the grace of God? And then about everybody except the Calvinists raised their hand. (laughs) And what do they say? They claim victory. Well, I guess we can refute this point and move right on. That's a straw man argument. When you know you can't win the debate, you build a straw man and then machete him to death. The only reason sinners respond to God's salvific grace is because he opens their heart like Lydia to believe it. Because if it were you, again, you can boast. Here's a hymn that Spurgeon used to quote. The same hand that spread the feast gently drew me in, or else I would have perished. In my sin. Amen. Again, Jesus said in John 6.44 and John 6.65, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word, you can go look it up in your Greek lexicon. It means drag is what it means. Pull up water from a well. You don't stand at the top of the well, wringing your hands going, come up water, please come up, please come up. You throw down a bucket and you drag up the water. Amen? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me drags him, draws him. Well, then you're saying that God drags sinners against their will into the saving faith of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. You come willingly because he transforms your will by way of the effectual call. That's why you will to come. Amen? Yeah, you willfully came. He changed your want to. And made the call effective. John 6, 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. May we be grateful that it was granted by the Father that we come to Christ when he calls. 